You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I invited Tobias Kylile to discuss which stocks are currently on our radar. Tobias is pitching First American Financial, which is trading at an attractive price level, even if you adjust for the stock being cyclical. I'm presenting North Media, which is trading at only four and a half times free cash flow if we back out equities and cash from the balance sheet. I'm also briefly going through the investment thesis of Process, which is one of only four stocks in my portfolio. It's always a blast recording the Mastermind episodes, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as Tobias and I did. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Stig Broderson, and today I am here with Tobias Carlyle. Hari is somewhere in India on a delayed flight, uh, so we had to sit this one out, but the mastermind group, if you call it that, is you and me, Toby. How are you today? Works for me. Good to see you, Stig. Good to see you, Toby. So, Toby, let's, let's get right into it. Uh, would you want me to go first? Please. Fantastic. All right. So, Toby, I wanted to talk with you about a stock that's been on my watch list for three years, but it's a company that I've known for much longer. It was actually the company I got my first, very first job, age 13, 14-ish as a paper boy. So I got to say, it's been one of the stocks that's been most on my radar, even though I'm not as an investor at that age. So the company is called North Media, and it's a Danish, uh, Danish company. It's a very small company. You can only buy it OTC unless you're in Scandinavia. The stock ticker is K9041B139. In case you didn't get any of that because it's over the counter, you can find the transcript and it's in there. So if you want to do that after the episode or throughout the episode, you can, you can just go to the transcript and find it. I'm also going to put it in the show notes. It's a small cap company, market cap of only 200-ish million dollars. The numbers uh, I'm going to give you here in this pitch here, it's going to be in the local currency, Danish kroner, unless stated otherwise, just to make it a little easier. What's the conversion stick, do you know, off the top of your head? It's like seven, uh, 7.25 to the Danish kroner. Danish kroner to the US dollar? Yes. Um, so this is like a $30 million US? Oh, so, sorry, no. The, the market cap was $200 million. And so just sort of like to give you an idea what it's probably like 220. But like the other numbers I'm going to give you would be in the local currencies, just instead of converting 20, 50 different, different numbers. But, but good question. And in case anyone is worried about currency risks uh, and saying, hey, I'm not based in Denmark, the Danish kroner is pegged to the euro. So you can just consider it like you'll be buying a stock in euro and has been pegged for in turn to now. Everything is equal. It's probably a, a stronger currency than the euro if it were to break. The pick, which I don't see is, is realistic at this point in time. So full disclaimer, uh, I do not own a stock, but it has become a little more interesting here lately due to the recent, I was about to say bear market, at least it was whenever I started preparing for this, but with the bounce and all, who knows? This is a, an ugly stock. It's, it's what Warren Buffett back in the day would call a cigar butt investing. Like this obscure small stock that's drowning in cash, making a bit of money. Anyway, so I wanted to, to bring this pick up for a few different reasons. I actually list four reasons down. So it has a large stock portfolio compared to the market cap of the companies, around 40%. It has a declining legacy business from the industrial world that's spinning off a lot of cash, but it's, it's declining and it's secularly declining. And it also has a growing tech business. So what is North Media? You can think about North Media as three different businesses in one. The first one, that's the legacy business I was talking about before. It's Denmark's leading distributor of leaflets and local newspapers to consumers. And they also have a digital side as well. In addition, FK Distribution uh, provides packing services for Danish customers and for Deutsche Post, which is the main German distributor of mail and uh, parcels. It accounts for 84% of operating revenue and have a, has an EBIT margin of 22.7%. If you look at some of the historical data, last year was 
quite unusual. It was 28. This is probably more what you can, what you can expect. You have 66% of Danish households who are receiving leaflets. That's a negative change of 2%. And you can probably expect that to, ha- uh, to, to continue. And what's interesting uh, about this business is that it doesn't require a lot of manpower. It used to require a lot of manpower. Uh, they now have a new fully automated logistics and distribution set up. And the second part of the business is what we would call the tech business, which is the remaining 16% of revenue. If you look at the EBIT margin, it says 2.1% for 2021. Uh, but there's a lot of adjustments in those numbers that you have to, to make. In reality, it's, it's much higher. The numbers from the first half of 2022 just came out today. It says 10.2%, which is more accurate, but the reality is still higher. And we're going to talk more about normalizing that uh, later. And uh, digital services consists of three units, and then they have a 50% interest in another company, in, in a fintech company. The largest unit is a rental housing platform. That's the clear leader in Denmark, which has networking effects. And it's building a similar platform in Sweden. I'm pretty bullish on the Danish version, probably not so much on the Swedish. And this just more comes from me being a bit pessimistic because if you present the argument that you have strong networking effects in your own country, why do you expect that you you can just go to another country that already has strong networking effect with another platform and say that, oh, we can just do the same. But that that is the most interesting of those three. The second biggest business unit for the digital services is the job seeking portal. This is a segment that grew sharply during COVID and it's growing has a 15% EBIT margin. The platform is the fifth-ish biggest job platform in Denmark, depending on how you, how you measured it. And so it's been monetized through online advertising for, uh, for employers and have some other services too. I don't see them as a having a, a distinct uh, mode whenever it comes to, to this unit. And just doing like a, a small detour. I don't know, have you, have you ever watched, uh, Toby, the, um, the um, video with Peter Thiel? It's called Competition is for Losers. I have a long time ago. Right. Like, and, and he talks about, you know, the real, like the companies who have a monopoly, they go, you know, through lengths of saying, oh, oh, look at poor me. We don't have a monopoly at all. Like we Amazon, we are like global retail. Like we have no market here. Um, <laughs> and so, and then you have the other companies who are like, look at all this monopoly power we have. And that's typically because they don't. Anyways, so this is the market that have uh, grown a lot here uh, recently. It's the seventh consecutive quarter where they had double or triple digit uh, growth. They are making some interesting investments. Uh, bought a, bought a, a small Danish company for uh, $12 million and the local currency, $4 million to the founders, and they put $8 million in. So the, the, third, the third unit, just please stay with me here, the third unit in the second, uh, it's like digital services, which is like the second unit, if you want, is called B-Key, and it supplies and maintains digital access solutions to, to customers. So easy access to locked door, uh, encrypted keys. It's only 2.5% of the overall revenue. And if you look at the numbers, it looks really ugly. Partly it's because it is ugly, but you also have a lot of write-offs for some IT st- structure. Um, that's been written off. They have the operations in Ukraine and have been, they haven't, they haven't really changed the operation itself, but the IT development team is based there and had to be relocated due to everything that's happening. So if you, if you adjust the EBIT uh, for digital services, it would probably be at least 50% higher if you remove BKEY and, and the investments that they're making there. And then they also have 50% uh, in a company called Common Connect, which is a fintech business that's grown relatively fast, 83% mission on, on revenue. Uh, accounts for 3% of the consolidated EBIT. The third leg in this business is the securities portfolio. If we look at the latest numbers that we have, they have 643 million. And again, this is local currency, but 643 million and the market cap is 1634. So if you look at the latest numbers, 39% of the business is, is in equities. 18 stocks-ish, last time I counted, tech, healthcare, other industries, mainly Danish and American equity. The Americans are generally in tech. I don't want to derail you, but why, why do they have an equity portfolio? I think it comes from a few different reasons. The main thing is that the founder, uh, we're going to talk more about their ownership structure, but the founder who owns 56%, I want to say, of the company, 
He's 82 and he's still, so he's no longer chairman, but he's, I'm, I would expect that he still has a say. What they're saying is that uh, they want to, to take advantage of, of great opportunities if that happens. And they also have a strategy in place where they're going to spend up to 200 million from 2021 to 2024. They haven't spent a lot of that money into acquisitions. But even if they did, giving the free cash flow they're doing, they're probably going to do short of 200 million this year. It doesn't really make sense. Like as, a, as an investor, especially in this type of, of business, you probably want them to pay out the cash. The, the owner who is, again, he doesn't have any kind of operational role. He's not no longer chairman of the board, but he is still running their equity portfolio. I would imagine it's because of those reasons. Uh, and perhaps it's better for him to run the portfolio from inside that company that he wholly controls. If he had to do that privately, of course, he could, he could transfer to, an, to another company. But he, if he has to do that privately, he would have to pay 56-ish percent in, in taxes first. So there are like probably different reasons why it happens. But it's sort of like, now we're more going to like local tax laws and all. So, but anyways, I, I can understand why it sounds odd. And this, you know, as an investor, you, you probably would like to see a different type of, of asset allocation. So we would probably want as investors to go in and analyze those 18 stocks. If I had to, to do an assessment without going into every one of the 18 stocks, but they're quite familiar names, I would probably say they might be slightly overvalued. Last year, they were definitely overvalued. But I'll, you know, if you put me on the spot today and, and uh, the fair value right now is 643 as of 31st of July, they might be, might be a little lower. Also keep in mind, um, and these are, these are generally uh, very liquid stocks, so, so uh, large cap stocks and mega cap stocks, primarily invested in Denmark and in the US, which is among the most expensive stock markets in the world. So if you just use that as an, as an indicator, we probably are slightly overvalued. But I wouldn't say, if you look at the intrinsic value, I, I had a chance to look at them. I wouldn't say it's more than 10, 15%-ish. It's not, it's not outrageous, uh, the, t- the type of, of valuation you see in the portfolio. To your point there about why, why they hold equities, they have this idea, which is also true, of course, that uh, it's better to, to have them in, in equities in the long term rather than in cash. Of course, then you can make the argument as an investor, you might be even better if it's in your pockets instead, <laughs> instead of, but it is, what it, uh, it is what it is. The company has no debt. They have three mortgages spread, over, spread across five properties the long-term fixed rate. The properties are carried at 244 million. The mortgage is 117. I'm not going to use this in any ways in, in my valuation. It's just more the way that's been operated. Uh, I kind of feel it would be too aggressive to add any of that equity into uh, the valuation. At least I choose not to. And the company has 114 million in cash too. I'm going to walk you through the math at the very end because I know I'm, I'm throwing a lot of uh, numbers at you right now. But anyways, you're, you're basically looking at a company with, with securities and cash close to 750 million. And the market cap was like 16, it's just called a 1650. So you are paying 900 million for assets producing around 200 million free cash flow. If we, if we look at, uh, at the buybacks, um, just in t- talking a bit more about the capital allocation, Generally, I think the founder has done a, a decent job. He did purchase. I always like to look back and say, uh, when have he sold and bought in the past? And does that make sense with the intrinsic value I had in mind too? It hasn't been crazy numbers. There was a buyback yield of 4% in 2019, 2020, and he sold a bit back in 2021. It's only very little though, but he sold whenever the stock was clear or valued, which you don't see a lot of founders do like it's it's very much like either or so they would buy continue to buy back stocks even though it doesn't make sense and there were issues yes at the wrong time it seems like the founder have a pretty good idea of what he's doing the dividend is five days kroner so it was just equivalent to a yield of uh, 6.25 percent at the moment and the intention is to maintain the dividend for 20 uh, until 2024 and then revaluate and the company went ex-dividend and uh 28th of March, and it was paid out 30th of March. So just keep that in mind. So talking about the ownership structure, I think I mentioned the founder owns 56% of the company. 
Um, no other investors hold more than 5%, which you're by local laws are, are forced to disclose. Aside from North Media itself, that owns 8.12% of the treasury shares. Those shares are mainly used uh, um, in terms of, of compensation. It still meets the, the Ron Buffett rule of not giving out more than 1% uh, in terms of dilution to, to reward management. The chairman of the board has recently made uh, open market acquisitions at a price of 72 and 92 Danish kroner. And the stock is trading today at 80 Danish kroner. We also have seen some, some insider selling, but you know, as we talked about uh, on this show before, there are always many more reasons for selling than buying. You know, there are stock options, there are tax considerations, someone is buying a vacation home, diversification reasons. There are typically only one reason why someone wants to, to buy, but there are a bunch of reasons why you want to sell as an insider. Let's talk about, I mean, I kind of feel I make it sound all of this sound good. Uh, lots of bad stuff too. So, <laughs> so let me let me talk about uh, some of the bad stuff. Two things I'm really on the lookout for here. One of them is that by definition uh, in this country, you get leaflets sent to your door unless you say no. And uh, a long time ago, there was some jitter that, oh, should we change that? So generally you won't get sent all types of leaflets and pamphlets and advertising to your door unless you say yes. And it's always been the other way around, which is just very, very powerful. And my wife and I, we actually did, we don't want the, that product. And so we had to go in and cancel it because we moved like a year ago. And whenever you move, it doesn't follow. And it's actually really annoying. And like the process is quite a few ways for you to stop you to make it difficult for you, basically. So you'll continue to, to get those leaflets. So that's, that's a major risk since most of the money comes from FK distribution, which is the legacy business. If that piece of legislation would change, major risk. The other thing, and I want to say this in a political correct way, I'll, I'll, see if, <laughs> I'll pause and see if I, if I can say that. People who use this service are dying. But I want, I want, I want it to be chronological. <laughs> I want this well, to come that was off. politically correct version. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that was the politically correct version. But the reason why I'm, I'm saying that, obviously I'm, I'm joking as I'm saying this, is that you can track like generally it is so that the older generation wants this and the young generation do not want this. They can get it digitally or they don't want it or they, they go directly to, to the store that they want to shop in because you know, they have their own apps and... And so that's also uh, one of the many reasons why you see that, um, you know, you, we have some graphs here. Um, I, I can link to the one on the reports and we can just see year after year that it's just slowly declining the number of people who, uh, who want to receive these. And right now it's 66% and 10 years is going to be significantly less. Then you have other costs, you know, they are in distribution. So uh, the price of oil, that going up, that has been a bit of a pain. The price of paper has skyrocketed, which has been bad too. North Media not buying the paper themselves, but the customers are buying the paper. But it has the spillover effect in terms of managing their cost in advertising. So that, that's sort of like, those are the major, at least for the, for the legacy business, that's the, the, that's the major risk that I'm looking at. Could they lose the market leading position delivering uh, these? Probably not. That's not the way it looks right now. Um, also, the interesting thing about having this type of legacy business is that you don't get a lot of competitors because it's a dying business. Um, so it's, it's something to consider. But it, it, is, it is a business that, of course, has some type of, of competition. You have like the former national monopoly um, who also delivers, but that's, that's, they, they do slightly different things. When you're doing your valuation for this, do you model the decline in, in this part of the business? Did you model that in? Like, what are your assumptions there? Continue to de decline at like 2% a year or? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, 
Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Whenever I look back over the past three to five years, it's generally been like low to mid single digits uh, decline for the legacy business. And of course, all of this depends on do you measure in, in, in the currency or do you measure in uh, the volume. Whenever you look at the strategy uh, they outlined going until 2024, they talk about a stable turnover. I would say that's probably a bit ambitious. In any case, it would be nominal numbers whenever they talk about the a stable turnover. And with inflation at 8%, you know, you have to, you have to consider that too. Then you have, uh, again, if you look at the strategy, the, the growth in the digital services, which is around 16% of revenue now, and probably will have different margins whenever they, uh, they mature and they stop investing as much, uh, you probably see around a 20% annual growth. Right now, they're almost offsetting each other. And that, that is the strategy because they actually ca- call F- FK Distribution, that company, they actually called it the last mile in the report. And that's probably for, for good reason. They also have a uh, business relationship with Deutsche Post, uh, which is the uh, main German distributor. Uh, but they only package that because they have the fully automated system. And they do that for 1.9 million households in Northern Germany. They do not distribute them. And whenever that was announced, they didn't, didn't make any changes to, um, to, to the guidance. And so it's not disclosed how much money they're making. And they say that it's a, it's a focus. I guess I, it's about survival and manage the slow decline more than anything as much as great as it sounds that, oh, now we're teaming up with a, with a much bigger market. Um, that's not where the money is, uh, is my best guess for, for North Media. The other thing that could be a bit concerning is that whenever you want to acquire companies to grow, I'm not saying that it can't be done. Of course it can. It's just very, very difficult. It's a lot easier if you're really good at something and you grow that business. Whenever I say that if you take out cash and we take out the securities and it's trading at four and a half times EBIT or free cash flow, EBIT and free cash flow generally follow each other, which they don't do for all businesses, but it's, it also shows like what type of business it is. Uh, it, it is spending off a lot of cash. It's cheap. It's also cheap for a reason, but it's, it's definitely not an expensive share compared to the intrinsic value right now. If we talk about potential catalysts, one thing that we as value investors have seen over the years are companies who 
are profitable and the stock price seems to go nowhere. And you keep on, and, and even, even if, it's, if it's also because they're spinning off cash, it seems like it's not really going anywhere because it's just sitting there. So I have a potential catalyst and it's also not political correct. So, so that, that's, go, that's going to be my disclaimer going into this. The founder is 82 years old and he's the one managing their portfolio. I don't know how lot, much longer he's, he's going to do that. Uh, hopefully, you know, and I want this to come across the right way, hopefully for many years I have, I don't know him, I have nothing against him. Sometimes what we see whenever the owner is not there for whatever reason, the new shareholders change the strategy and want to do something else. And so what I said there between the lines and, and going to say here now is that perhaps the new owners want to liquidate the portfolio. Perhaps they want to increase the dividend payments. And uh, like I mentioned before, I mean, we're, we're talking about like a 40% market cap. That's, you know, securities and, and cash. And we have a six plus percent dividend yield. It's real cash that could be distributed. It was announced back in February of 2021 that him, um, the founder and his wife has decided to give their shares uh, to, a pot, uh, to a foundation uh, that would retain the current long-term and strategic direction of the company. I'm not completely sure what to make out of that, uh, but everything else equal, I would imagine that the pressure for paying out some of those, that cash uh, would probably increase whenever he's, he's not managing that portfo- portfolio for whatever reason. I have a disclaimer here in the end. I kind of feel like this has been, it's probably been one of the longest pitches I've done here. Uh, <laughs> or one of our mastermind groups. I wanted to make sure that I made a proper disclaimer. I am a little uneasy whenever I present a small stock uh, like this that's bought over the counter. The listeners could potentially move the market. I remember whenever our friend Jack Taylor was on and he pitched like this very small, I think it was Fairfax Africa, like the, this very small stock. It could be a complete coincidence, but whenever we released the, the episode, which we did over the weekend, Monday morning, it just went up and it's such a thinly traded stock. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that's the, uh, that's the case, but I, I checked the numbers here before and they might not be updated, but I checked it two thirds into, uh, into the trading day. There was 14,000 shares traded and they're trading in dollars. They're trading around $11. And so it's not a huge volume. We are closing in on hundred million downloads here on the feed. And we have, let's say 200,000 people eventually listening to this episode. So if that's the volume of the, of the day, it, it, it doesn't take a lot to, to move that price. And so what we've done as hosts is that uh, we all signed this, this pledge that we won't take position in the stocks that we mentioned on, on our episodes uh, after 30 days after it's been published, unless we have a really like clear disclaimer of, oh, we want to buy it at this price. We want to be very upfront with it because it probably wouldn't make any difference if we're talking about Apple, I'm pretty sure. But now we're talking about, you know, this obscure stock. And even more important, uh, this was something that William got in, which I really like. It said the Warren Buffett rule is not to do anything that you wouldn't see on the front page on the newspaper the next day. And so, so that is the guiding principle. And so I, with that, with this long disclaimer, I want to say that I do not expect to take a position 30 days after this is being published. If it was trading lower at around 60 Danish kroner from now until it's been published, I probably am going to take a position. Uh, right now it's trading at, at 80, but just so everyone know, aside, you know, unless there's some sort of opportunity cost and, and other stocks are more appealing, I might not buy at 60 Danish, Danish kroner, but it would be very, very appealing around that price. So if I have any excess cash and there's not something else that looks fantastic, it would, it would be something I would be, uh, be, be looking for. Toby, that was, uh, that was a long pitch there. Let me throw it over to you. I, I'm curious to hear any, any thoughts you have about, uh, about the stock. I like these sort of positions because the, the downside is fairly capped. The question is, how do you realize the value in it? And I guess the, with a 56% owner who's 82, with any luck, he's probably got quite a few. He's got years and years and years. So there's no, there's no immediate catalyst. Having said that, 6% dividend is pretty material, particularly in this market. And you've got the found value of like the 40% of the market cap in, in equities. 
leafwood business, even though it's in decline, it's an interesting business. It's going to throw off a lot of money. They've got some competition, but it's probably they can probably raise their prices as they go along because that that last mile is pretty attractive. They they do have a little bit of pricing power there, and then I don't know. I, I sort of missed slightly how big the digital services part of the business was relative to the. Do, at what point do you think that that grows sufficiently to offset the the decline in the other business? To answer the first question first, it's sixteen percent of revenue. The EBIT, yeah. uh, the reported EBIT is ten percent, whereas it was around just called twenty, but it's, I think it was twenty two for the last mile. But in reality, the digital services EBIT is much higher. Beaky are accounting wise are, are losing a, a bunch of of cash because of write-offs, but also because uh, they're reinvesting. It's probably not my favorite business either. But if you would normalize the EBIT on that, I would say would be higher than 20%. So it's something to to consider. The ambition is to grow 20% a year. And I think year over year, I think the growth is 16%, I want to say. I, I'm just if anyone is like going to report afterwards, I'm like, ah, that number is slightly off. You had new numbers coming out like, I watched, I watched the presentation like six hours ago. So some of the numbers are very, very new. If you look at uh, year over year for the last reported quarter, which was, it was, I want to say it was around 16%. I'm scrolling through my notes, but it's, it's in that range. And so whenever you hear them say, well, we're going to allocate up to 200 million for acquisitions. And those acquisitions would be in the digital services. If they spend all of that money, it will grow a lot faster. If they don't spend any of that, it will take a lot longer. It is quite tricky. And it's going to be one of those, you know, remember in school and you had one of those, like the train is leaving from, you know, this city and it runs by 40 miles an hour. And then there's this other city and it's, you know, when do they cross? And yeah, so it's one of those. So you might say uh, you have this 84% uh, of revenue. Let's just use use revenue and it's going to decline. It's called 4% a year. Then you have the other thing that's 16% is going to grow by 20% a, uh, a year or whatever number you, you, you think is reasonable. Um, my head is spinning right now. There's probably something that someone in eighth grade who are listening to this already <laughs> already solved it. But that's the, um, that's the way it is. And, and you know, in, in terms of, of allocation, you know, they are, as you can probably tell, taking that cash to reinvest, of course, also to pay out this dividend, but to reinvest in deals or service businesses because they know that's the way it's, it's going. And the rest... They just put in put in equities, so it is like an interesting way of of um, thinking about What's this. The payout ratio. How much are they paying out? Yeah, so it's a bit it's a bit tricky whenever you talk about the payout ratio because the the payout ratio are typically measured on the net profit. But you know, we we have this uh, change in gap rules or uh, IFRS rules, as it would be in Europe. And so whenever you look at those numbers, they are all over the place because it's mark to market. And so whenever you see the market decline, as you've seen, is going to look really, really ugly. And then last year it looked fantastic. I want to say it's around, it, it's less than 50%. Let me, uh, let me see if I can find the, uh, the exact number here. Yeah, I would expect that because I, I would expect the free cash flow to be around 200 million. The 20 million shares, they pay five. So yeah, around 50% right now uh, would be the payout ratio, give and take. So the way that I would think about this is you have it's a $200 million US market cap. 40% of it is in equities, which let's say they're worth roughly what they're worth. There might be some good stuff in there that's going to grow, but let's just treat that as cash for the moment. So you get to, it's $120 million in market cap. Sorry, $120 million in enterprise value paying out. You get $12 million in dividend on the $200 million, 24 and then another $12 million yes, next year because the 6% is fixed. Sorry, 6%, that dividend is fixed. So it's 12 and then 24. So you're getting a lot of your capital back. And then inside you have a business that's still throwing off a lot of money, plus these two others that are growing pretty rapidly. It's, it's a reasonable risk-adjusted bet for where it is. And the 6% dividend you're getting paid to hold it. Downside is minimal. Upside is... At some point, it gets taken care of. Yeah, That's the kind of position that I like. If I were Toby Carlyle with the basket approach, I would like this type of of company in my uh, in my portfolio. 
Aeon, as of yesterday, I bought a new stock yesterday. We probably don't have time to talk about it today, but um, we can always do it next time. I have, with that, I have four individual stocks. I, I tend to run a pretty concentrated portfolio. I also have other type of investments, but for, for my individual stock picks. What so, do you hold? What's in your portfolio? I, uh, I have Berkshire, I have Alibaba, uh, Google, or Alphabet. Um, and keep in mind, whenever you're listening to all of this, like the one thing is what it's trading at now, another thing is the price you bought it at. Uh, not that I did, did well on Alibaba. I actually just added to my position today at $89. So uh, whenever this comes out, who knows? <laughs> who knows how much it has slided since? And yesterday, uh, I bought Process. Is it the South African company that buys um, a chunk of Tencent? Sort of. So they did this swap, Naspers, because they want to unlock the value. So they made that with, um, with, and incorporated then in Process. The control is still with, with Naspers, but the values of the business is with Process. And if this sounds complicated, it's because it is. And so... I bought, a, I bought a small position. I bought enough to pay attention, but not so much if I'm completely off in what I'm doing. It, that really affects me. And I, I sort of like do that just, just to make sure that I keep up and then double down if I, if I realize that, that, that there's something there. And if it's not, I typically tend to sell it. I really like to have very few equities I focus on at the time. What, what Process is doing right now, is, it's just interesting now that we are, we are talking about it. I bought that just for... Full disclosure, I bought it at 63 euros and 90 cents. I did it while the net asset value was 101 euro per share. And so what's interesting about it, because you know they, they did decide to, uh, to, to unlock the value. And I think this was announced probably in late June. I can't remember exactly, but they own a lot of 10 cent. It used to be 45%, but now it's significantly less. I want to say off the top of my head, 27% whatnot. I looked at it this morning, uh, but I kind of wanted to have it in front of me. All right. So, so they have numbers that they actually update on a daily basis, which is very, very nice. The net asset per share right now in euros is 100 euros and 50, 50 cents. The net asset value in, in billions of euros is 142.7. And that's not at all what it's trading at right now. And so if you just look at Tencent in itself, what it has now is $107 billion. And so what they do right now is that they are selling Tencent shares, even though that's for all intents and purposes undervalued, they sell that to buy back process in the market. So the way to think about this is uh, using generic numbers, they are selling a dollar for 60 cents to buy back at 40 cents. Selling a dollar for 60 cents to buy back at 40 cents to narrow the gap between the two. Is that the idea? Is that that's what they're trying to achieve? Yeah. Right now, if you bought this year, you actually get uh, more 10 cent stock in fair value that you're buying it for. Plus you get all the other businesses for free. I know it sounds odd. A lot of times there's something is trading below net asset value, but in this case, it's primarily marketable securities. Not all of it. Of the listed assets, they have 112.7 billion euros and they have 31.3 in unlisted assets. And that comes from analyst consensus and post-money valuations. It's difficult for me, whenever I read up on the portfolio, it's difficult for me to say it's worth 31.3, but I'm pretty sure it's worth more than zero euros. And so that's the first part of the thesis. Whenever I look at 10 cents too, which is sort of like, I know I'm derailing the conversation completely. Tencent looks really cheap to me. And so I'm buying something that's probably already discounted through a vehicle that's already discounted. Plus, I'm getting, what is that? Almost a third of that in extra free businesses, if you want, from their unlisted assets. It is what it is. I know I'm throwing a lot of, of, of numbers at people, but I'll make sure to link to some resources and, and everyone can take it out for themselves. Have you seen something like this before, Toby? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's bread and butter for Deep Valley. It's <laughs> good stuff. Right. Are you looking at something like this uh, right now? No, my pitch is something different. 
but um, we'll get to that when we get to that. Right, right. Can I ask? Because whenever I saw it, I was like, "Huh, this is this is uh, this is interesting." Do you have anything in your portfolio? And I know I'm really putting on the spot here, but is that a part of your strategy, or are you using different metrics to 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 find the companies? I'm looking for operating businesses now. My my main focus in the funds is operating businesses that are throwing off free cash flow and are using it to make material buybacks. For the most part, that's the kind of stuff that I like. I like them when they're growing by themselves, but I like to see management exercising some discipline around. I think the the stock that I'm going to pitch is a good example of that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. All right, let's, let's do um, it, Toby. So the, the one that I'm pitching is First American Financial. It's a $6 billion market cap, $7 billion in enterprise value. So it's about a billion dollars in debt. Dividend yield is 3.5%. Over the last, say, five or six years, return on invested capital has varied from about 12.6%, which is about run-of-the-mill for listed companies, to as much as 21% last year. But that was probably flattered by the property market. So First American Financial, what they are, they're a title insurer. That's not a business that many people will be familiar with. But the idea is that in the US, there's no centralized government depository or record of who owns real estate. So when you buy real estate, you're you're always running the risk that the person that you're buying it from doesn't have clear title. And that's a catastrophe. If you buy something and there's somebody else owns the property or there's some uh, encumbrance against the property where somebody else can come and interfere with your clear title, to the house that you live in. You don't want that. So there are a number of these companies around, and First American Financial is the biggest, that have these very extensive, comprehensive databases of, of title chains. So you can see that you are getting clear title to the property. So as the purchaser of a house, you buy title insurance 
And it just guarantees that if there's any issue, then you're going to be made whole to the extent that you can be on your house acquisition. And so it's a no, it's mandatory, but it's no, it's a no-brainer for somebody buying a house to go and get title insurance because it's such a small amount of money relative to the cost of the house, and then you protect it. So the suppliers of for the the seller of insurance, it's actually it's a, it's a good business for them too because it's not like prop you know, personal and it's not PNC, it's not property and casualty, it's nothing like that where there's big payouts. It's not balance sheet intensive. What it is, it's just like a due diligence process. As long as their systems are good and they've tracked it, it's very unlikely that they're ever going to need to make a payout. It's sort of part of the, it's just part of the diligence process of buying a house. So the business itself is very, it's very profitable. It's very dependable. The issue, of course, is that it varies along with the property market. When there are more property transactions, they make more money. When there are fewer property transactions, they make less money. They also need it for, you need it for a refi and you need it for a sale or purchase. You make more money from a sale or purchase than you do from a refi. That's about two and a half times as much for a sale or purchase versus a refi. First American makes about, well, they made $9 billion last year. So it's a great business. That resulted in about $618 million in free cash flow on a $7 billion enterprise value. So it's like a 9% free cash flow yield. Over the last, say, six or seven years, that's varied from as, from as little as like $12 million, $18 million to 600 being the best. Average is about 200 over that period of time. The reason that it's cheap is that we're likely going into housing markets collapsing a little bit over here. There's some statistics today that I saw that the housing, there is in California, which tends to be more boom bust than any other state. It looks like we're going through like a 2007 or 2020 type. There are as few transactions going through as those two periods. So it's possible they're not going to have great years for the next few years. But the business is, it's just, it's so hard to compete with something like this if you don't have that database to start off with. So there's a handful of competitors. These guys are very good at buying in local markets. They've got sort of 550 offices. They've got 20 something thousand employees. So it's a business that requires some. It is a little bit hands-on. And they buy these little inch title insurance companies in specific markets where they don't have coverage. But otherwise the the presentation on the website is very good. It shows you what they do with their what they do with their cash flow. They've been very good at buying back stock pay a dividend it's about three and a half percent or yield at the moment so that's that's what i like to see that they do a great job buying back stock and they they, they pay out the cash flow to the extent they can it's a great looking capital structure and it's a simple business that it's it's readily understandable so i think it's the business it consistently earns more than its cost of capital which means that it definitely has very chunky value there and it's hard to compete with it so it's the sort of business that i really like small simple clear people need it and the, the cost to them is minimal compared to the, the the larger transaction that occurs when they buy it. So that's it. I love your, your pick as always, Toby. You know, the big question mark is how, how bad is this going to be uh, with the interest rate going up, the recession coming? At least the bond market is telling us that a recession is coming. I had a chance to look at uh, the most recent slide deck. I'll make sure to link to this, but if you look at page seven in that deck, it goes all the way back from uh, to, to 2000 and what happened after the bust of the dot-com bubble. And you can just see how like with the uh, refinancing, even though, it was, even though it was primarily located in tech, at least that's how we think back at it, you saw a lot less refinancing and origination as well. Pre-tax, Margins at the time was around 5%. And then uh, you saw the peak. It turned profitable uh, soon after that. It was already profitable, but a lot more profitable. And then uh, you had the, um, the two th- 2008 great financial crisis. And then you saw negative pre-tax margins for some time. Since then, it's only going up. And it's now around 17 18% pre-tax margins. You can see that they estimate slower sales. And who knows how bad it's, it's going to be like. I've been burned by 
picks like, I wouldn't say like these because I, I think this is more solid, but I've been burned by some oil stocks in the past. <laughs> and you know how this with cyclical stocks, or at least you learn after you're bur- you've been burned with cyclical stocks that they typically tend to look really appealing whenever they trade at really low multiple. And the rest of the market knows that something bad is going to happen, which is why it trades as a, at a very low multiple. And then the profit just disappears and the multiple seems not to matter at all because it's what is minus <laughs> a t- time of infinity whenever you do the math. And so I guess that's my, my main concern with a company like this. Um, I don't know how bad it's going to get. I just don't know the market well enough. We've seen whenever we had recession in the past, that's not going to go well. The question is, how high is the interest rate going to go? Well, we're, we're already into the, we're, we're sort of into the, the fall in property market. That's, that's going on right now. Uh, so uh, the, the data that I saw today says that it's the number of transactions going through in California is comparable to 2020 and to 2007, which are the two worst sort of uh, the two quietest periods in the last, like whatever it is, 20 years or something. The business has been around for quite a while. They, they can track it. You can see the data in that slide deck that goes all the way back to 2000. And it, it has it has good years and it has bad years, but it's quite it is reasonably consistent. And even if we go through this period of time where there aren't as many transactions, people will still buy and sell property, and there will still be refinances going on. From that perspective, it's not like an oil and gas business where they don't know what the price of the the commodity is going to be in twelve months' time. Negative numbers are possible. It turns out I didn't realize that was a possibility in oil and gas, but it is it is evidently. And then also very high prices. It's nowhere near as cyclical as that. And it's not like they're investing into that market. They just they, they participate along with transaction volume. And so what I think will happen is what we're seeing now is the slowdown in transaction volume. And that's why the stock is cheap. And that's probably why, you know, you can look at the valuation and it does look like it's the cheapest valuation in 10 years. But as you point out, that's likely a little bit misleading because it'll be on peak numbers when we're going through the bust right now. But I think that if you look out further, if you think out three, five, 10 years, this business is still going to be there. Oh, yeah. The business is still going to be going. The business is, um, the normalized run rate for this business is, it could be sort of a half to a third where it is now. But there's the, the downside, I think, is very limited. The downside is virtually non-existent. It's hard for this to be a zero. It's hard for this to, be, to fall much more. I think this is not the stock price that I'm talking about here. This is the business itself. I think it's hard for the business to slow down much more than they're currently enduring, which will probably come out in the next, the next few quarters. You'll see how, how bad it is. But even in that scenario, I don't think it's that bad because it throws off lots of free cash flow. It's conservatively capitalized and it's just hard to compete with. Nobody's going to be coming in and competing with this business. There are, it does have other competitors, but these guys have got, they're like 23% of the market share, something like that. Mm. Very solid. That is very solid. I just think it's a, the upside may not be huge, but the, the downside is very limited and it should earn a reasonable return from here. I completely agree with everything you said, uh, Toby. I, I think that uh, the downside is, for sure, is, is very, very low. They talk about how 25 basis points on the uh, Fed funds rate adds up to another 15 to 20 million a year. So part of that is, is of, of course, a hedge. If you had to do the apples to apples uh, comparison, uh, just of course, consider how much that the investment income is uh, compared to how much cash flow they're doing. But it, just to give you some numbers, so the market cap is like six billion. Uh, the price to free cash flow is eight point two today, time of recording. And what's what's interesting about their investment portfolio, they have six percent in equities of their nine point five billion dollar uh, consolidated portfolio, and. Might sound crazy to you if you compare it to a company like Berkshire, but most companies are not like Berkshire or like Geico. Uh, they're, they're managed by other asset managers. Uh, the bond yield right now is 1.8%. Average rating is double A, and the duration is 4.3 years. And so there is something, I guess, a hatch offsetting there. Whenever I see stocks like like this uh, with uh, First American. And whenever I see the one with North Media, I am thinking, oh, let, let's have 30 stocks like that. 
let's let's not be super concentrated have three or four stocks and let them just throw off that cash and let's make mean reversion do its magic is that where you're at right now in terms of constructing a portfolio uh, or or let me ask you another another way cuz who would that type of investing be right for so i use that that's that's how i invest i like to buy a portfolio because I've seen people get too concentrated into individual names and blow themselves up. I don't think that you're going to have any problem with the names that you have, but I just, I have seen people get caught. Everybody's looking at the upside. Everybody forgets about the downside. The downside is the place that I start with. I want to make sure that none of them can blow up. I want to make sure that they can muddle through even in bad markets for their, for their, even in bad markets for their businesses. And then I also like to see management that in the event that you do go through something like what these guys are probably facing, that has a track record of buying this, because that's the, that creates that anti-fragile kind of quality where they take advantage of the undervaluation. And you know, if all else being equal, as a shareholder, you want the price lower because that means that you are going to be concentrating faster into the, the business as they buy back as they buy back stock. So my portfolio is filled with these sort of companies that throw off lots of free cash flow that have that grow reasonably, but might be a little bit more cyclical. The cyclicality is something that management can take advantage of and buy back stocks so that you over time, you own more and more of the underlying business. So that's, 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 that's essentially the, the strategy. It's, it's, uh, I don't have to be as deep in the weeds in any given name because I can, as long as most of the pieces fit in a portfolio of 30 or 100 names, depending on how big, you know, the, the my small and micro portfolio is much more diversified for the simple reason that they are less high quality businesses and they are much more subject to the other things that go on around them in the, in the economy. So they are very sensitive to the economy. I, 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 th- I think that it's hard to, it's hard to lose too much on these, and it's probably likely that they deliver reasonable returns for the capital investor. That's basically why I'm thinking about it. Interesting. And I, I guess uh, two points to that. The first one, in, in case everyone's like, so a stick then invested uh, 40% in Berkshire and 30% in Google and 30% in Alibaba and then just bought one share of process. Um, so my, my three shares are now four, uh, four shares, but process is very, very little, little. That's 20% of my pot, my portfolio. So just before Toby, you get too concerned and like something is going on there. Um, so it, it is what it is, but it's, it's the small portfolio I have with individual stock names to your point about, uh, first American, I, I, I love what they're doing right now with the, with the buybacks. Uh, it's interesting tracking what they've done in the past on that. Since the beginning of the year, they repurchased approximately six percent of their shares. It's a it's a lot, and this is a company that's trading at eight times free cash flow. So, like things are going fast, and like Charles Munger saying, "Beware of the cannibals." And uh, this surely is one. And I don't think this is going to go out of business. I also just want to clarify that it's been it was incorporated in eighteen eighty nine, and even though that's no guarantee that it will continue, a lot of saddle makers also incorporated around that time. I'm sure. It doesn't seem like this company is going going anywhere. So I just wanted to, to clarify that. Do, do you have anything you wanted to, to add to North Media, to uh, First American uh, Financial, anything? I like, I like these positions. I like, I like North Media as a pick. I think that you will see the, uh, the Investors Podcast bump <laughs> when, uh, when this goes public. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to, I won't, uh, to I won't drag touch it. it. Just to be clear. <laughs> okay, great. Not, yeah, not not because I, not because I don't like it, but because I, I think that there will be a bump. All right. Okay. Yeah. Let's uh, let's see. It was actually be interesting to to see what's going to happen. Um, hey, Toby. Before I let you go, as always, please give the audience an opportunity to where can I learn more about you, your funds, what do you do? My my funds are the Acquirers Fund, the ticker ZIG. It's thirty names domestic US, following along the same strategy that I just outlined before. And I have a smaller micro cap fund, um, the ticker's Deep D E E P. And I have a website, acquirersmultiple.com. I'm on Twitter at greenbacked.com. Uh, sorry, greenbacked G R E E N B A C K D. And uh, I have some books out there as well that sort of 
articulate the strategy in more detail if you're interested in that. Most recent one was the Acquirers Multiple, which came out in 2017. It's on Amazon along with everything else. All the links are on Acquirers Funds, Acquirers Multiple, and uh, the two the two funds have their own sites as well. Always, always fun being on, Stig. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always fun chatting. Uh, I look forward to uh, to next quarter already. Uh, as you can tell, I already prepared my pick uh, process. Uh, anything that's that's on your mind? Uh, not that you can't uh, go back on your word, uh, but any kind of stocks you're looking at right now? Well, I hope that we have. I hope. I mean, I I think that we. I don't see anything that's screamingly cheap, given this little run up that we've had since mid June. But I do see a lot of. You know, the operating margin for the S&P 500 has come back from 13%, which mm. was at its peak, which is extremely high. It's 10%, which is still high. And I think that that trajectory is true for many businesses they have seen. And who knows whether it was because 2020 and 2021 were unusually good years, or if there is some real slowing in the economy. I do think that it's the latter, because you can see that in other figures, like housing is slowing, all of those other things. I, I think that you're seeing that in businesses. So I don't see anything that's so that's growing so rapidly and likely to continue to do so that you can justify a big premium for the business. So I'm sort of I'm, I, I have this thought that we're probably likely to go through. I think we're midway through probably an extensive bear market. I don't know, but I that's my sort of gut feeling when I look at where all of the multiples are for the for the market itself. And where I look at the underlying trajectory of the earnings, I sort of feel like we're, we haven't cleared the decks yet, so I suspect that we will. So I'm hopeful that when we come to do another mastermind, there will be some screamingly cheap stuff. Probably that'll mean that we're, we're well into another bust. And I would say to people out there who I, I, I've been through two now, I've been through the 2000 bust and the 2007, 8, 9 bust. 2020 was a, was a, was a flash crash. And there was a bust in 2018, sort of towards the end of the year, and there was a bust in 2016 as well. I think that people have now been conditioned to expect that these things recover really quickly. This is not as deep as 2020, but it's sort of been much more extended in terms of time. This is what real bear markets look like. It's not so much the collapse that kills you. It's the, it's the rallies being sold to lower lows that just wears you down over time. And I would just mentally prepare potentially for another could be another year to 18 months of this before we see the, the real bottom. And I'm saying this with the market within kissing distance of to all-time highs. So I don't know when this will come out. It could, it could be clear that that's already happened by the time this comes out. That's, that's sort of my gut feel. So I'm, I'm not nervous about the market. I just think that you should be mentally prepared for more carnage as we go along. You have these small rallies and you feel like now you're out of the weeds, especially if, if you haven't experienced the markets for a long time. And what happens is that they're selling to a new low, as you were mentioning, and they just exhaust you to a point where a lot of people just lose faith. And that's, that's whenever things get ugly. And I, I want to say, say to you, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but last time we had uh, one of these conversations, uh, you said that uh, in the first two-thirds of a bear market, it lost a third of the value. You're nodding, so you know where I'm going with this. And the last third, you're losing two thirds of the value. Yeah, it's that one third of the the two th- the first two thirds in time leads to one third of the loss, mm. and then the last third in time is two thirds of the loss. And that's um, that's a Ken Fisher line, but I've heard that from also from uh, the British quality investor. What's that gentleman's name? Just escaping me at the moment. In any case, it's a, it's a average bear market to eighteen months to two years, and the bulk of the selling occurs at the end. It's that final spasm of selling that sort of indicates the end of it. Same thing happened in, in two, the, the two thousand seven two thousand nine crash started in two thousand June two thousand seven. By June two thousand and eight, it had almost rallied back to almost uh, to, to all time highs. It didn't quite get there. But then all of the selling happened from June 2008 in Q4 2008 and Q1 2009. So it was quite drawn out. And so I don't know what the, the equivalent is now, but we could be. And the other odd thing is that the, 
the ARC complex, complex, the profitless tech that started selling off in February 2021. So that's now well and truly 18 months of selling. The market itself didn't sell off until the start of this year, but that's that's what happened in 2000 as well. It was all a little bit delayed. And so the whole thing was quite delayed. And so I think we, it's impossible to predict where the market goes. I should say that first off. The reason that I say this is just you need to be mentally prepared for, and I'm mentally prepared for another 18 months of sort of carnage here. Let them be the last words. Mentally prepared for 18 months of carnage. <laughs> hey, Toby, fantastic. It's always, always good fun speaking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Stig. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.